Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. This morning, we have the privilege of hearing from a guest preacher, Minato Holman, who is a member at Selwood Church and just graduated recently from Western Seminary, where he currently works as a graduate assistant and soon he's actually starting his PhD in biblical theology at Midwestern Seminary, which is located in Kansas City, Missouri. But he's going to be remote, so he'll still be here in Portland. But uh, looking forward to the word that God has given you this morning for us as we continue our series in First Peter uh, Sojourner. So uh, be attentive and go on up, brother. Can you guys hear me all right? Yes. All right, great. Well, it is a pleasure and a privilege to be gathering with you all here at Sojourn Church. Um, let me pray for our time as we dive into God's Word. Father, we do come before you, seeking to hear you speak to us, God. Throughout the week, we, we hear plenty of messages and, and words from the world and from our flesh. God, we desire to hear the truth now. And we acknowledge and confess that your word is true. So would you speak into each one of our lives here this morning? And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Seasons of wartime uh, bring as many opportunities to act with honor as it does opportunities to act with dishonor. I think it's true of any era that news about the war front can either inspire us or discourage us. And stories about cowardice can be just as gripping as stories about courage. One tells us about who we'd like to be, and the other tells us about who we fear we are. The story that is rarely told or mentioned in about World War II is the nearly 50,000 Americans who deserted their armed forces during that particular war. Some fell into the arms of French and Italian women. Some fell into becoming black market pirates, and many more simply broke under the strain of battle. During the war, newspaper outlets would abstain from writing about desertion because one, it was bad for morale, and two, the enemy could use it uh, against them. The reason soldiers abandoned their posts ranged from things like poor leadership over certain companies and battalions, and as one historian puts it, some soldiers deserted when all the other members of their units had been killed and their own deaths appeared inevitable. And we can only imagine that apart from those who actually deserted. The temptation to seek safety and comfort away from the pain and suffering of war was likely in more people's minds and was likely tempting more than the 50,000 who actually deserted. Now, I would hope that if you are a veteran or hope to be, that you would not find yourself in a situation where you are tempted to desert your command and as a civilian, that none of you would find yourself in a position where you are exposed to such dangers in your life, like war. Yet I think that many of us, if not most of us, are familiar with the kind of suffering in life that can tempt you to question various areas of your faith and perhaps abandon and desert it altogether. Perhaps these words have a small sting if you have just gone through this kind of suffering very recently, or maybe you're being dragged through the mud even as you make your way into this church gathering this morning. Wherever you may be, I believe that God's word has something to speak to each one of us as it addresses this topic of 
how we react to suffering in our lives and the temptation we feel to not stay the course of our faith. And as your pastor concluded the last week's sermon on verse 5, I now have the privilege of picking up in verse 6, where the Apostle Peter continues to minister to the various churches in his area. And I think it's relevant to point out that verse 5 actually ends with an Old Testament quote from Proverbs 3.34, where Peter and then also the Apostle James in his own letter both interpret and then apply this Old Testament quote to the new covenant people of God, as they say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I just bring this up because I believe that verses 6 through 11, what's about to be preached on here this morning, is actually Peter's mini exposition of this Old Testament quote. We're about to see how God, how exactly God opposes the proud and exactly how God gives grace to the humble. And so on that note, would you please take your copy of God's word, if you haven't already, and turn the page with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. The big idea of what I believe to be this whole section of scripture, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, what ties this whole piece together is this. The church is to resist the devil by trusting God in light of our future vindication in Christ. The church is to resist the devil by trusting God in light of our future vindication in Christ. And we're going to see this as we walk through our text in three points. The response to God, our advocate. The response to the devil, our adversary. And then God's promise to us, our hope. Response to God, response to the devil, and God's promise to us. First, our response to God, our advocate. Found in verses 6 through 7. So allow me to just reread these verses for us. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Verse 6 starts with the exact same pattern as the rest of the letter has been going, that Peter gives an imperative or a command, and then he goes on to explain on what basis, for what reason we have to obey this actual command. Something to briefly mention and why I'm titling this point as our response to God is that in while verse 5, which uh, Pastor Matt finished last week's sermon on is actually directing our humility toward one another. As it says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. In our verse here this morning, we find that the ultimate domain, the ultimate banner in which we are seeking to be humble is under God and under his mighty hand. And so, although our humbling takes direct shape and form by humbling each other, by humbling ourselves to one another, humbling ourselves under leadership, under pastors, and to be clear, your own pastors, not other people's pastors, but the pastors who are shepherding your souls. As we humble ourselves under them, and we humble ourselves under government officials and fallen human institutions, we do all of that because of our pursuit to be humbled beneath God's mighty hand. And to really understand why we can and how we can humble ourselves under God, I would like for us to see clearly the two concepts that Peter wants us to grasp here this morning. First is the providence of God, and second is the goodness of God. These two vital doctrines of God have been under attack since the very beginning in the fall of man. 
but we can hear it clearly in our own day as well. Now, these two doctrines couldn't feel more at odds by those who have been severely struck by affliction and deep, deep suffering. The accusations hurled at God are probably put most concisely as, God is all good, he cannot be all powerful. And if he is all powerful, he cannot be all good. Have you heard these phrases before? Have you heard these comments thrown as a decisive and irrefutable fact by non-believers? Have you yourself heard these words start to form in your own thoughts as they come up from a heart that's experiencing great suffering and loss? Hear me now. Scripture is not absent-minded, the apparent contradiction of these two facts in your life. Yet Scripture affirms both of these facts, that God is providentially in control of all things and he is good, completely good in all that he does bring about. Instead of letting our experiences or emotions to dictate and decide what is truth and fact, scripture informs and seeks to comfort us in our experiences and emotions. So Peter first points to the providence of God in verse 6 as he uses the term the mighty hand of God. And we shouldn't get carried away to think that God has actual hands like we have hands, but it should cause us to remember the Old Testament narrative in which God works in the world and events of history, specifically in the Exodus event, where um, God calls Moses, sends him to Pharaoh to have him let his people go from slavery, and then after Pharaoh ignores all of these commands, God tells Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And if you know that story, God eventually sends plagues which lead to the eventual release of his people, and then it climaxes to the part where uh, God splits the Red Sea and brings his people to safety. And so Peter seeks to remind, God, remind us that God was sovereign over the king of Egypt and is now sovereign over every event in our lives today. Peter would have you and I put away any thought that God's hand may be weak or impotent by designating the mighty hand of God as actually working in the midst of your suffering. And now all of these things are operating on his timetable. As our verse says, the result or the outcome of our being humbled, which is our eventual exaltation, happens not when we see fit or at any random time, but it's when he sees fit and when he designates as being the proper time, which I think we should interpret as being the return of Christ. And so God's providence is moving history to an end, which he is surely bringing about. And to fill out or just balance our understanding about God, he concludes this sentence by bringing our minds to the goodness and care of God. As he says, the reason for our humbling ourselves before him and our confidence in bringing our anxieties to him is because he cares for you. Now, of course, we could stop short by saying that this is God's general care or that his universal care over all of creation, but I think Peter's getting at a special kind of care that God has for those who are in Christ. A kind of care that elicits their response to come to him and prompts his people to humble themselves by casting all their anxieties onto him. 
It's the kind of care that I know certain friends or spiritual mentors have toward me that allows me to share my, my greatest moments of joy and my deepest sufferings. You may have someone like that in your life. You may have multiple people like that in your life. You might have no one like that in your life. Regardless of which group you actually find yourself in, I would have us see from our passage this morning that God's care for you is immeasurably greater than all the care of anyone else put together. It's a care better than the kind from parents, a kind of care better than from spouses, because it's the kind of care that has always been good to you since the foundations of the world. It's a kind of care that was for us while we were still sinners. And finally, it's a, it's a better care because it's a kind of care that is powerful and effective to do something when you come to him in need. It, for me, it seems that Peter may be meditating upon Christ's Sermon on the Mount, when he's, which Matthew 6 actually reports. So let me just quote it in length. This is Matthew 6, starting in verse 26. It says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap <clears throat> nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you hear in the words of our Messiah that God is both providential and good in his dealings with you? Amen. As you suffer the loss of various things in your life, a job, a house, a relationship, as you incur the betrayal of a close friend, family member or spouse, as you struggle to know how to raise your children, as you struggle with the knowledge that you can't have children, as you mourn the death of a child, the death of a dream, and the death of a marriage, know that our God is not playing some cruel joke on your life, but that his strength has somehow waned. No, cling to the knowledge that our God has been providentially good toward you before you even knew him and will continue to be so to the end of your days. Notice from our text that our, our God does not encourage you to sink deeper into yourself, into isolation, or to work harder to get yourself out of your trouble or to exalt yourself. But as our text says, that he may exalt you. When we draw near to him and cast our cares upon him, the way we humble ourselves is by casting our anxieties upon the sovereign and good God that we have been acquainted with in Scripture. We are humble and comforted 
as we cast all our anxieties upon, upon him. Not withholding them, but casting them all upon him. Not negotiating portions of our anxiety, but casting all our anxieties upon him. This is our response to God, our advocate. To trust him by humbly casting all our anxieties upon him. And we'll move on to my second point. Our response to the devil, our adversary. Found in verses 8 to 9. So let me read those verses one more time. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So just notice with me that there's a sharp and distinct shift in Peter's tone. He's gone from verse 7, where he's talking about a message of comfort and casting our anxieties upon God. And then verse 8, he shifts into a, a message of vigilance and sobriety and alertness. After he gives these floating commands, be sober-minded, be watchful. And then he, ex he goes on to explain what we're to be watchful for. Namely, our adversary the devil. And this is the first time that the devil is appearing in our text and in the book of, of, the, of 1 Peter. But we shouldn't view this as the only instance in which the devil has been working. No, as Peter has been describing various kinds of persecution and trials that could come upon us in a physical way, he has in mind the spiritual battle that is taking place behind these things that would try to shipwreck our faith. It is only here that Peter finally brings the devil into the picture to show us the actual threat that is upon our lives. Not the blows that you could receive upon your body, not the attacks that you could receive from others in hostility, but the assault upon your soul. That is the real threat. The reason Peter is more explicit here in the end is so that in the end, we would not be ignorant of the true enemy that is after, that we are seeking to resist. There is perhaps, in my view, no other doctrine that is about the existence and the agency of spiritual, uh, of evil spirits that is more generally ridiculed by non-Christians and Christians alike. I, I can only guess that this is because of the Hollywood portrayal of these creatures or because of our Western 21st century propensity to view things on a merely materialistic level. Whatever the case may be, our passage, like many others in Scripture, bring the realm, bring this idea of evil spirits out of the realm of mere curiosity and speculation into the realm of fact. And it's to these facts that I want us to look a little more closely. So let's be keen to notice that the language in which Peter uses about the devil is in terms of his characteristics and his goals. So in relation to his characteristics, he is called our adversary. He stands in opposition to God foremost, and now us by association. He is a friend to no one and an enemy to all. He hates God and men. And the only thing that he has in common with his subordinate followers is their common hostility to God and all that is his. It is in this that he is not a passive being. But as our text says, he is prowling. He is in constant, active, and strategic effort 
to accomplish his goals. And that goal is none other than to devour us, God's people, as a lion would seek to devour its prey. In the particular context in which he seeks to do this, is in the context and seasons of our suffering. I think it's totally appropriate to think that the devil could tempt us away from God in seasons of abundance. Yet in the context of this letter and the surrounding verses, Peter is bringing to our attention the unique kind of temptation that there is before each one of us to abandon our faith when we are undergoing severe trials and sufferings. And I hope that you're starting to see maybe some of the logic of Peter. Because it's in the midst of our suffering that the enemy would have us question the providence of God and the goodness of God, and that he uses these open wounds to tempt us away from the faith altogether. Have you seen this taking place in the lives of people around you? Those who at one time seemed to walk with the Lord, but upon affliction and suffering have abandoned God. And in the language of our text, have been devoured by the devil because they couldn't adequately reconcile how their suffering would match up with the providence and goodness of God. Have you yourself felt this temptation in your own life? Perhaps in the past or perhaps now. Of course, as, a, as only a guest preacher, I don't know the unique stories that make up your congregation, but I do know that there are some of you here this morning and I've gone through unimaginable suffering as a Christian. And there seemed to, and you have likely weighed or thought to yourself, is this really worth it? There seem to be people who are having much more enjoyable and successful lives, living as if there is no God but themselves. Is this really worth it? Yet what I have found to be more common is rather the temptation doesn't come at us like that, out of the gate. Rather, the enemy is far more subtle in his ways. First, he tempts us by asking us to soften the suffering, by dampening it and numbing it, leading us to thoughts like, maybe if I can just medicate or disconnect from this suffering for just a little bit, it won't seem that bad anymore. If I can just get a few minutes of relief in a fantasy, I'll feel better about dealing with the harshness of reality. And so sex, alcohol, and drugs become ways of escape from the present suffering. That's something we never imagined indulging in now becomes what we feel we're justified to do so. And what you must hear me say this morning and what our text say this morning is that it is a lie. The devil is lying to you, and he is always lying to you. Dear believer, the sphere of the devil's attack is not out there in the hostility and the slanders of a hostile society, but it's within our minds and hearts, which the enemy truly wants. You and I are called to resist him in this by remembering that we are not alone in our suffering, and that these attacks by Satan are not unique to us. We are not alone in two significant ways. First and probably foremost, and most fundamentally, we are not alone in our suffering because of our faith in Christ, who suffered and was tempted, yet without sin. But just consider with me for a moment that Jesus was led into the wilderness, and after fasting 40 days 
and forty nights was tempted by the devil to turn stones into bread and to throw himself off the high places that the angels would come and protect him. Yet Christ resisted Satan perfectly and sinlessly where our first parents, Adam and Eve, had failed and where we ourselves have failed. Even our best attempts to resist the devil cannot clean the sin that stains our hearts and our record before God. And consider with me that Christ, being fully God and fully man, did not use his divine rights to free himself from the moment of death on the cross, but willingly suffered the full weight of the Father's wrath against sin. And there was anyone, anyone who could rightfully claim to cry out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the sinless Son of Man. And yet, though he was crucified, died, and buried, the devil did not devour him like he thought he did. No, he was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Dear Christian, you and I are able to resist the devil when, we, when he would try to weaponize our suffering. And when we are able, we are able to resist him because we look to Christ's suffering on our behalf as our substitutionary sacrifice. If you do not know Jesus in this way, I urge you to consider the reality that faith in Christ will not, hear me, will not protect you from hardships and sufferings in life. And in fact, it will certainly make it harder and probably more inconvenient. Yet rather than leaving us feeling like our difficult experiences are meaningless, it makes every moment good and bad, joyful and affliction, afflicting. It makes it all meaningful because we see it in the light of the grace of God that is covered over our sin and placed on Christ the far greater suffering that we ourselves deserved. Knowing this kind of great love for us turns our complaints to God from, why me, Lord? What have I done to deserve this kind of suffering? And it turns it into, why me, Lord? What have I done to deserve this grace? You and I are called to resist the enemy by remembering that we are not alone in our suffering. And now a second way, by remembering that similar attempts by the adversary are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the age, throughout the world, throughout your own local body as, as a church. <clears throat> the application for us on this point, I think, is very clear. To make it your aim to know the suffering of others in your local church. By doing so, you are able to remind and minister to one another the faith that we are firm in. So take time throughout your week to hear how your brother or sister is doing with various challenges that the Lord has placed in their life. Find one or two brothers or sisters that you are able to confide your troubles and affliction to. And as you do so, as you do so, you may find once again that the local church is not given to you as a matter of mere convenience, but it's given to you as a, as a matter of vital necessity. I think this is the sense that's given in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, 
Here's something I found on the web. Who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Whereas we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This is our response to the devil, our adversary. To resist him by looking to Christ's suffering, sharing in it, and knowing that your brothers and sisters are doing likewise. So we've addressed the response to God, our advocate, the response to the devil, our adversary. And now we'll look to my third and final point. God's promise to us, our hope. Found in verses 10 through 11. The Apostle Peter writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit these last words. Let me read it one more time. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. These, I believe in this part of the text, we have three substantial promises given to us. And as a promise from God, they are not fanciful wishes or, or possibilities, but actual fixed events that is in our future. And as promises from the Lord, they do not originate in us or depend upon us to actually bring them about. Rather, they depend upon God and his gracious dispensation of these promises and their fulfillment. Our confidence in God's promises have no actual ceiling because they come from the God of all grace. As I said in the beginning, that everything in 6 through 11 is actually Peter's mini exposition of that verse in Proverbs 3 34, where he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And now the author is signaling to us the bookend of this whole exposition by showing that God gives grace to the humble, not because they are deserving of it, or because they have done anything to merit it, but because he is the God of all grace, who will surely fulfill all of his promises in Christ. And so first, the promise of suffering is end by the phrase, after you have suffered a little while. It confirms for us the pain and sorrow we experience now will cease. The Lord will not permit it to continue into eternity, but will put an end to it after a little while. Have you been afflicted by ailments for the last few months, years, or even decades? Know that your suffering is for but a little while. Have you been mourning and weeping because of the loss of loved ones? Know that it is but for a little while. Have you seen that the sin you once took pleasure in now torments your soul as you seek to abstain from it and walk in holiness? Know that it is but for a little while. Know that it is but for a little while that our present sufferings actually afflict us as they stand in contrast the eternal exaltation that he has called us to. In light of eternity, these are things we experience for a little while. This doesn't trivialize your sufferings or your trials or challenges, but it does give us hope 
where there was previously no hope. And it sets things in their proper perspective. As Paul will say in a similar way in Romans 8, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And this is the second promise that God gives us in our text. The promise of our eternal exaltation in Christ, which includes being restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. I think the use of these four words are just to give us kind of a four-dimensional or well-rounded view of just how much or to what degree God will exalt us. And how, and actually he's already doing so, which is often called the already but not yet view. So you will be restored. That which you lack or that which you have lost will in the end be made complete in you. And you already have all that you need in Christ Jesus. You will be confirmed. Any, anyone who's afraid that they will fall before their enemies, that they will not keep their ground, that they will be shown to be an apostate, that they will be put to shame as a pitiful fool for believing in God, will actually be, and already is, confirmed in Christ because he rose from the dead. You will be strengthened. In the day of spiritual conflict, God will not only enable you to stand, but will actually, actually give you the energy to move forward, to press forward, as he gives you strength when you boast in your weakness. You will be established. After sojourning in a land that is not our eternal home, he will make you rest securely as a building on a solid foundation in Christ Jesus. Finally, now and into eternity, you see the third promise taking effect. Specifically that all dominion will certainly be his and his alone. By this promise, we're saying something similar as I did in verse 6, where I pointed out God's mighty hand. So in verse 6, we considered that there is the providence of God and that he is able to, he has the power to do all things. And that he has the might to do all things. And now in verse 11, we're seeing God's right to do all things. He is the king of the universe as its sole creator. And therefore, not just has the power to do all that he wishes to do according to his will, but has unchallengeable authority to do so. This is more than a mere fact, but comes to us as a promise when we hear that the taunts and derisions of the world will, at the end, finally acknowledge the triune God. As Paul says, I think more clearly in, in the book of Philippians, he says, being found in human form, he, speaking about Christ, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This promise has already begun to take place in the church, and now we wait expectantly for its total fulfillment in the world at the return of Christ. At that time, he will put an end to all of our suffering and vindicate his people by exalting them. As I said in the beginning, which I hope you are now convinced of, the church 
is to resist the devil by trusting God in the light of our future vindication in Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, we, we praise you here now and thank you that you have definitively disarmed the rulers and the authorities of this present age by conquering death and rising from the grave. Lord, we, we take comfort knowing that you do care for us and that your care for us is not just a, a benign attitude towards us, but is a care that actually acts in, on our behalf and acts to save us. Lord, we, we pray that as we do move throughout this, this age and wait for the return of your son, that you would continue to comfort us as we humble ourselves under your hand and cast our anxieties upon you. God, keep us from, from casting our anxieties upon all of the temporary things of this world. But God, give us the reminder, give us the strength to approach you every day. So we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.